This text this morning that we're about to read is considered by many to be one of the greatest uh, texts concerning the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no way we don't, I don't have the mind. I'm sorry, I'm limited by my own uh, intelligence. Um, I cannot dive deep enough to get all the precious jewels out of this out of this text and the depths that we're about to dive into. And really, it doesn't matter how smart you are, our finite minds struggle with comprehending this idea of God becoming man and yet never ceasing to be God. Uh, my, I, I, can't, I can't do it. It's like, the, it's like you know... Uh, trying to hug one of them uh, redwood trees, you know, I mean, them big old trees there in California. You can't put your arms around it. You can't put your mind around it all. It's like the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't understand it. I just believe it. Amen. This thing of the incarnation of God becoming man uh, and dwelling among men and yet never ceasing for one millisecond to be God. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But we, uh, even though we can't explain it, we better not try to explain it away. Amen. Heard somebody say about, there's an old quote about the Trinity. It says that uh, if you try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you might lose your soul. And uh, there's truth in that. You don't want to explain it away. You got to believe it. And to be born again, you got to believe Jesus is fully God. There's no way around that. You can't, that is, that is a non-negotiable uh, you must believe this truth to be saved, to be born again, to trust in the, the real Bible Jesus. And, uh, and so we're going to look at these verses this morning, and we're going to look at them again tonight actually as well. There's a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, uh, a, 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 another side of this thing that I want to look at tonight. But this morning I want to look at it really from a theological perspective and just mind the, the truths of what is here in these verses and we're going to do that together. Verse 5, we're going to start there in, uh, in chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And I want to title the message this morning this, The View from the Manger. The view from the manger. And I believe it will make sense here in just a minute. Let's pray. And let's ask God to help us as we study His eternal Word together. Father, we love You. We're thankful, Lord, for the privilege we have, Lord, just to be in church and then to open up a, a, an inspired, inerrant, infallible, infinite 
word of God that gives us great truth like this. We would never have known this great truth if not for your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us to handle it correctly and reverently. And Lord, I pray that these truths would not just be uh, uh, just some kind of doctrinal statement that we keep in our mind, but Father, I pray that they would find their way to our hearts and we would worship you and give you honor and glory and even rearrange and reprioritize our entire lives, Lord, because these things are true. And Father, I pray that you would touch me. Lord, you know my limitations uh, physically and even mentally, God, and I pray that you would please touch me and help me to preach, Lord, filled with the Spirit of God and surrender to you. And Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, it's amazing as we read about the birth of Christ in the Word of God, uh, throughout all different accounts, we have Matthew gives us a lot of information. Luke gives us a lot of information around the birth of Christ. We really have uh, a lot of different perspectives that we can draw from. A lot of times when I'm trying to maybe study to preach something that would be uh, seasonally appropriate, I, I look at uh, the, the story, I look at the, the, the narrative from different points of view. Uh, there are several people that we could examine this morning and we could look at how these things unfold how Jesus was born of a virgin and came to this earth. And we could look at it from their point of view. Of course, Mary and Joseph would be a great uh, and is a great study to look at the incarnation from their point of view. Can you imagine being in their, in their position? Can you imagine being Mary and getting the word from the angel about all the things that were going to take place? Can you imagine being Joseph and learning all these things about the woman that you are engaged to? And, 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 and she says one thing, but you <laughs> never heard anything quite like that before. And then the angel comes and clears everything up. Their story, their perspective would be one, of course, of worship. Mary gave great worship to the Lord and, and, exalted, uh, and exalted the Lord because of, of His, uh, uh, his uh, choice to use Mary. Uh, but it would be one of fear and maybe of worry, anxiety, uh, of, uh, of maybe uh, uh, of wonder and and. and, and and, and, and uh, uh, not being able to comprehend everything, struggling with this truth of what's taking place. That was, that's an amazing thing to look at it from their perspective. The Bible also gives us the birth of Christ from the perspectives of some shepherds that were at, at night keeping watch over their, their uh, flock. And the angel come to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Their story seems to be one of amazement and excitement and uh, joy and astonishment as they go and see the, the babe and then they go into town and they tell everybody what they had just seen and what had happened to them. And then the Bible gives us an interesting perspective of, uh, from a priest by the name of Simeon and then a widow that was at the temple uh, there serving by the name of Anna. And that's amazing. Those stories are amazing as well. Those would be stories and perspectives of thankfulness and gratitude and worship. And then you have even a perspective of a madman like Herod and the way that he looked at the coming of Jesus. And he was jealous and he was insecure and he was full of anger and hatred and rage. And he tried to have the child murdered. And then you could think about the wise men who came sometime later, but yet they were still honoring the, uh, the birth of Christ, and it is one of uh, humility and honor and sacrifice. And then even the Bible, sometimes you may not think about this, but there's another perspective of the birth of Christ that we have in the Word of God. you got to go to the book of Revelation for this, but in Revelation 12, you see the birth of Christ from the perspective of Satan himself. 
and from the devil. The Bible says that he was there and he was waiting for that child to be delivered so he could devour the baby and devour the child. How about that? You ever think about Christmas from... Satan's point of view. That's a very interesting take. But there's another, even another point of view, and that's the view that I want to look at this morning. It's one that we really don't think about a lot, and we don't think about it in this way, but our text really is interesting because it gives us the incarnation from the Savior's point of view. It's the view from the manger itself. It is the view from the Lord Jesus Christ. What did the incarnation mean to Jesus What did it mean to him? What did it feel like to Jesus? We know what it felt like to an extent to Mary and Joseph and to Simeon and Anna and to the shepherds and wise men and Herod and even Satan. But what did it mean to Jesus? What was going through his mind? What was he thinking about? as all these things were unfolding. And we have that here in this text. Verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a mindset. This is an attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that's the only way he could have known what was on the mind of Jesus, through being inspired by the Spirit of God. Paul tells us what was on the mind of Jesus. What was the mindset of Jesus throughout this entire process? And as we examine these verses, I want to point out this great incarnation miracle as it is explained, not from my perspective, not from Mary and Joseph, not from the shepherds, not from wise men, not from Herod, not from the devil, but it is explained straight from the mind of Christ, the incarnation from the very mind of Christ. What did it mean to Him? What was on His mind? What was the perspective from the babe in the manger? And I want to point out five things very quickly, uh, or maybe not so quickly before we go home about this view, this perspective from the manger. Number one, the first thing we see in our text is the place he abandoned. We see the place that he abandoned. Can I say something about Jesus? You're going to have to get with me this morning to help me out because uh, I need some help this morning. And that is this, that nobody has ever been as high as he was. Nobody has ever been as exalted as he was and yet constantly descended so greatly and so far as did the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody has ever been so high and has ever went so low. Notice your Bible and notice the place that Jesus has in eternity past. Verse 6, it says, Who, Jesus now, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. How high was Jesus? And I'm not just talking about heaven. I'm talking about who he was. I'm talking about his person. I'm talking about the place that he held in his pre-incarnate state with the Father, the place that he held before the worlds ever were spoken into existence, the place that he held before there was a Bethlehem, before there was a manger, before there were shepherds, before there were wise men, the place that he has held for eternity past. He is God. There is no higher place than being God. There's been a lot of men that thought they were higher 
higher than God and thought their place and thought their position was more exalted than God. But that is the highest place to be. And I'm here to tell you, and though this is one of the mysteries of the Trinity, even though He was that second person of the Trinity, yet He was not, uh, he was not uh, anything less than equal with God. Yes, He is the second person of the Trinity, but I want you to know that He is co-existent and co-equal and always has been and always will be with God. The Bible says in verse 6 that He was in the form of God. That is His very essence. That is His very being. Not just the way He looks. That's not what it's speaking of. A lot of times when you and I think of the word form, we think of uh, maybe an outward form, something that appears as such. But no, this is speaking of His very essence, His very being, who He is. Jesus has always and will always be God. The Bible says in our verse here that He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's a very interesting way to put that. But here's what that means. Jesus did not... Listen, if you don't like doctrine, you ain't going to like His message this morning. I'll go ahead and tell you. It's a doctrinal message this morning. But uh, He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's a very interesting phrase uh, and what that means. Now, I thought about it this way. This is just the only way my mind can, can, uh, uh, can uh, uh, wrap around some of these truths. And that is, you know, I think about a lot of times when we're over in the gym, maybe we have a, uh, have a, uh, a dinner or something like that. If you look in, and I might not ought to say this, but uh, if you look in the, in the kitchen, a lot of times on the counter amongst the, uh, on the counter in the, in the kitchen there, uh, in the gym, you'll find all kind of uh, ladies that have put their pocketbooks and purses and all kind of things all right in there. They just leave it right on there. If you wanted to when nobody was looking, you could go in and you could take something that has been done around here before years ago. But uh, anyway, it's another story for another day. But you could take something out of there. Now, if I were to find a random pocketbook and I were to uh, go up to it and I were to pull out a wallet and I would begin going through it and taking out money, what would that be called? That would be called stealing or robbery. That would be robbery because that is not my pocketbook. I don't have a pocketbook, by the way, but let me, let me keep going. Just hold on a second. I don't have one or a man purse or anything like that. I have a briefcase, all right? But anyways, uh, that would be stealing because that does not belong to me. But, but, if I were to see my wife's pocketbook sitting on the counter and I needed a dollar bill for something, I wouldn't think a second thought about going into her purse and pulling out the wallet and pulling a dollar because that's my dollar anyway. It just happens to be in her, in her purse. Now, I try not to go through Heather's purse because I can't ever find anything in there anyway. It is the black hole. It is the abyss. Uh, it, is the, it is the bottomless pit that the Bible speaks of, and I can't ever find anything in there. But that would not be robbery because you and I, Heather, whether you like it or not, we share everything. What's yours is mine, and what's mine uh, is mine. And so we, 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 share, we share it all. Isn't that right? That would be my money. That would even be considered, even though it's my wife's, it would be kind of considered my possession, just like my wife could go through my wallet and pull out anything that she would like, and she does that very often. You see, there is a difference between... Do you see the difference? One is robbery and one is not. 
One I would consider stealing, and one I would not consider stealing. One would be wrong and unethical and immoral, and one is normal and just fine because it is right and it is okay. Now think about that in terms of the Godhead. Think about that in terms of deity. Jesus did not consider it robbery to claim that he was equal with God. Why was that not robbery when Jesus said, I am equal with God and made himself equal with God? Why was that not robbery? Because he was. Because he is. Because he is God. Now if I were to stand up here and claim to this entire congregation, I am God. And I were to receive worship. And I were to let you worship me. And I were to let you pour ointment on my feet and and, and anoint my feet. And and I were to let you uh, call me God. That would be unethical and that would be immoral. And that would even be stealing the glory that belongs to God alone. That would be robbery. But if Jesus Jesus were in here and we were to bow at his feet and worship him, it is right and it is normal and it is even demanded because he is God. That is the place that he occupied before Bethlehem. He is God. Now I want you to know that the Bible tells us in verse number 7 as we go through the text that he made himself of no reputation. That literally means that he emptied himself. It's like if I were to take this bottle of water and I were to just dump it out, empty out all the contents. That's exactly what Jesus did when he came. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of all those things. I do want you to note this, and please don't forget this. He never ceased being God. He never emptied himself of his deity or his God. In fact, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. It always has, and it always will. But I do want you to know that he did empty himself of the privileges that he enjoyed as being the pre-incarnate Son of God uh, living in heaven. He did divest himself of privileges and prerogatives that he had as God. In fact, the glory, his glory was one of those things that he gave up. Did you know Jesus gave up glory to come to this earth? In fact, Jesus in his high priestly prayer before he were to go to, was to go to Calvary and die on the cross, he prayed and to God and he said, Oh Father, glorify thou me with the glory, with the, thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus acknowledged that there was a glory that he had before the world existed that he had bankrupt himself of and gave up to come to this earth. There's even attributes, even natural uh, attributes of his deity that was limited and suppressed in ways that I really struggle trying to put together even things of His omnipresence. He could not be in everywhere at one time in a human body. He was limited by that. Even some things about His omnipotence and even His omniscience of knowing everything. I don't understand it all. I just know the Bible tells me that as a child, He increased in wisdom. How in the God of the universe that knows everything, how can you increase in wisdom? Jesus Himself admitted that there was something that He didn't know. Did you know that? 
He did. They asked him about the return, his return. And when he's coming back, he said, only my Father in heaven knows that. Isn't that amazing? There was something about that human body, something about becoming a man that, uh, that he, he was emptying himself of different things. I don't have time to go into all that, but that's very amazing. What about all the riches of heaven that he gave up? Think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8. He said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for for your sakes he became poor that ye through his poverty might be rich. Think about all that he gave up. Think about how wonderful heaven is and how beautiful it is. And the streets are paved with pure gold and all the things that are there in heaven. He gave up every single bit of it to come and become a man. And he didn't come at the top of humanity. He come and was born to the very bottom of humanity. He was made a servant. A servant. A slave. He wasn't born in riches. He wasn't born in wealth. He was born in poverty. He was not born in a palace. He was born in a manger. How about that? Think about with me this morning the place that he abandoned. There was a song that I heard many, many years ago, and I wish I'd have thought, I thought of it this morning. I wish I'd have thought of it earlier. I'd got somebody to learn it and sing it for me. But it, it just says this, that he didn't bring an army to help him on his way. He didn't bring an angel to praise him night and day. He didn't bring one piece of gold to buy some food to eat. Instead, he turned and laid it all at the Father's feet. And then the chorus says, he left it all to rescue me. He left it all to die on Calvary. He left it all. Not one comfort did he bring. Not his robe, not his crown, not 10,000 bowing down, not one piece of jasper wall. He left it all. In the second verse says, This man they're crucifying, he says he is a king. But judging from the clothes he wears, he doesn't own one thing. But little did they know that day as his blood came streaming down. He owned the sun, the stars, and the moon. He even owned the ground. He left it all. How many of you are thankful this morning that he left it all for you? Aren't you glad he was willing to abandon a place of, of preeminence and, and wealth beyond our imagination and comfort where the angels praised him and the cherubim and the seraphim where they, where, they, where they would circle the throne and cry holy, holy, holy night and day. He left it all to be born of a virgin in a little barn somewhere and live the life of a lowly man. I read this quote the other day. It says, A thousand times in history a baby has become a king, but only once in history did a king become a baby. Isn't that amazing? Not only the place he abandoned, but secondly, I want you to notice the position he accepted. These things kind of go hand in hand. They overlap. Verse 7 tells us that he took upon him the form of a servant. and He was made in the likeness of man. I want you to think about that condescension for a moment. And Miss Maddie just sang about what condescension. What condescension. Think about not only where he left, but think about where he came to, the position that he accepted. He was the one who shared the glory of the Father in eternity past, the one who was surrounded by all the riches of heaven. He's now a human. He is a ball of dirt. He is made in the likeness of men, the Bible says. Now, he has always been God. He will always be fully God. I cannot emphasize that enough, but that one that is fully God and has always been fully God, he also became fully man. You see, listen, he was not half God and half man. 
He's 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. He wasn't half anything, because if you're half, you're missing another half somewhere. Amen. He was, uh, uh, Vance Havner called him the God man. He was man's perfect God and God's perfect man. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.16 says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. As a man, he became subject to all the feelings that come along with this old flesh. Paul said in Romans 8 that God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. That doesn't mean he had sinful flesh. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us in Hebrews 4 that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. But yet I want you to know though there was no sin at all, he was still tempted. He made himself subject to temptation and trials and the toils of being a human just like we experience. How many of you know what it's like to be hungry? I know you do because it's almost 12 o'clock and this is a Baptist church. I know you're getting hungry. Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry 40 days without food, without water in the wilderness. The Bible says afterward he what? He hungered. He knew what it was like to be thirsty on the cross. He said what? I thirst. You know what it was like to be weary? You remember he sat down in John 4, sat down there at, at the well, and uh, there he met a woman, but he was tired. He was weary from his journey, the Bible says. He knew what it was like to be in agony, right? In the garden of Gethsemane, in agony. His sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. Jesus knew what it was like to be sad. He knew what it was like to stand at the graveside of somebody that he loved, of a friend. And the Bible says that he what? He wept. Jesus knew what it was like to be human. And it's amazing that he will forever be fully God and fully man. Did you know God, that, did you know Jesus is still fully man right now? Did you know that he is he didn't give up his humanity when he ascended into heaven? He still is a man. The Bible tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and man and it is what? The man, Christ Jesus. There is a man sitting at the right hand of God right now. There is a man uh, who is our intercessor. There is a man who is our high priest. There is a man who is praying for us and working for us even now. And I'm glad that he did. I'm glad he became a man. You say, what's the big deal? Why did he have to become a man? Why did he have to do it? Because we would be forever lost if Jesus had not been fully human. Because it was a man... That sin in the garden, his name was Adam. It had to be a man that paid the penalty for the sin. And I'm glad Jesus the man redeemed everything Adam the man lost in the garden of Eden. Fully God, fully man. The place he abandoned, the position that he accepted. Thirdly, the posture that he adopted. I want you to notice these words in our text. Words like no reputation. Words like servant. Words like humbled himself. Words like obedient. All of these things show us the attitude or the mind, as Paul said in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, this attitude, this spirit that Jesus had while on his earth. He didn't come as a king and make everybody bow down to him. He did not come to be served But yet He came to minister, right? That's what He said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Isn't that what He said? 
can you see our Lord as He girds Himself with a towel and gets on His knees and washes the feet of His disciples? That's, that's, not, what, that's not what a leader does. That's not what a, that's not what a master does. That's not, that's not what a king does. That's not what God would do, right? From the worldly perspective. Think about it. If you were king, hey, hey boys, listen to me. If you were king, what, how would you make your siblings act? What would you make them do for you? Huh? Oh, man. Some of y'all, you ought to see some devious faces I'm getting up here on this front row. Man, just think about it. If you were, anybody ever think sometimes, well, if I was in charge, I wish I was in charge. So people want, that's how this world thinks. I want people to serve me, do for me. But how many of you know that's not how Jesus came? He didn't come to be ministered to. By the way, he don't. Listen, we serve Him. It's a privilege to serve Him. He don't need any. He don't need us. Amen. He can do what He wants to do. He made this world before we were ever here. But isn't that amazing? That The God of the universe, He did not come so that we might serve Him. He come so that He might serve us. Because we were helpless. We were hopeless. We couldn't help Him if we wanted to. But I'm glad he came. He did not come and emphasize his rights. He did not come and emphasize his reputation. He did not come and emphasize his rank. But rather, he came to serve. And even Jesus, as he dialogued with the Pharisees, he wouldn't even bring, he wouldn't even honor his own self. He said, The honor I have, it's from the Father. He said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. He let the Father speak on his behalf. I love that song we sing There's not a friend like the what? Lowly Jesus, no, not one. I think that second verse says, No friend like Him is so high and holy. No, not one, no, not one. And yet no friend is what? So meek and lowly. What an amazing thing. The posture. He took upon Himself the form of a servant. The form of a servant. I want you to notice this as well. Not only the posture He adopted, but fourthly, I want you to notice the people that He approached the people he approached. The Bible says that he was made in the likeness of man and he was being found in fashion as a man. Now that is amazing to me that he became a man. But not, And we already dealt with that, I understand that. But <clears throat> he became a man so that he might what? Get near to man. We see Jesus coming as a man and as a man he lived with man and he ate with men <laughs> and he fellowshiped with man and not just any man not, not just the kings and, 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 and the religious elite no, no, no he went to the very bottom of man and he talked to the prostitutes and he talked to the lepers he reached out and he would touch the lepers. How about that? Something nobody else would do. Everybody else would run away. He ran to them. <laughs> the diseased, the broken, the poor, the imprisoned, 
All those, the marginalized, the, the down, the out. He, he, he reached out to them and He was accessible to them. He approached them. And I tell you what, we ought to just stop right now and thank God that He comes to those that are down and out. And He comes to those, listen, we're not anything special. We're not anything important. The only good thing about us is Jesus came to where we were. Aren't you glad that He's God, but yet He said, I'll come eat with you. I'll come fellowship with you. He's not over here saying, Woo! You know, listen, all your humanity is going to mess up my deity. No. He said, your humanity needs my deity. And so I'm going to put on humanity so I can touch you. And I can feel you. And I can sit with you. And I can teach you. And I can talk to you. And I can see you. And I can, and I can cry with you. And I can weep with you. And I can be all these things for you. Man, what an amazing thing that is. For verily, He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham. I already quoted that verse, but the next verse says, Wherefore in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Isn't that amazing? He came and was merciful towards us. It ought to always amaze us that God came to us. It ought to always amaze us that God became us, but it ought to amaze us more that God not only became like us, but then He came to where we were. In fact, He'll come to you today if you need it. Amen. Amen. In fact, for our church, He says, you know what, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you'll just open up, open the door to deity, and what you'll find is the man, Christ Jesus. And He said, I'll sit at the table and I'll fellowship with you. Isn't that amazing? heard a story about uh, uh, about a man by the name of I mean, hopefully I get this I get this right Charles Templeton. Anybody ever heard of Charles Templeton? Probably most people haven't. I see some heads shaking. Yes, but probably most people haven't. You probably wouldn't know he was. But years ago, he was one of the greatest young preachers. It was said about him. He was one of the most gifted, talented. Uh, young preachers that there was. He was in a little organization. I think it was called Youth for Christ, I think it was. In fact, there were two young preachers that were together, and they worked side by side, and they worked together in this thing. There was one that was very, very, very gifted, and it was Charles Templeton. The other, he wasn't gifted as much, but you probably heard his name. His name's Billy Graham. They were together. They worked in this thing. About, I don't know, just a few years into ministering together, he gave up. On God, he quit the ministry. He uh, renounced the faith. He said, "I'm, I'm done with all of it." How about that? Billy Graham went on to we we all know those things, and Charles Templeton, you wouldn't hardly know his name because he quit so early on. Even though he was the more gifted preacher at the time, everybody recognized that. What's amazing is probably 50 years later, he's now an old man in his 80s. Author by the name of Lee Strobel, he he writes. He's kind of apologist. Writes some things defending Christianity and different things. But he's got an interesting story too. But he was writing a, a book on the case for Christianity or something like that. And he wanted to interview Mr. Templeton and just, just kind of see where he was at and what, what caused him to leave the faith and all kind of things. And he, as he sat there in Mr. Templeton's living room, he was interviewing. One of the first questions he asked was, what is your opinion of Jesus now? You used to preach Him years ago. 
what is your opinion of Jesus now? What do you think about Jesus? Now, 50 years later. And he began to say something along the lines of that everything that I know that is decent, everything that I know that is moral, everything that I know that is good, everything that I know that is pure, he said, I learned from Jesus. He said he is the most uh, striking figure in all of history. And he's such a, such a good man. And then he began to weep. Is what Strobel said, said that he began to weep and he began to, he began to sob and he put his head in his hands and he looked up and he says, and I miss him. That's what he said. He said, I miss him. I'll tell you, there's something about this man, Jesus. Once you learn about him, once you see him, once you know him, how wonderful he is. I tell you, a lot of people that's walked away from the church, and walked, it's not because of Jesus, it's because of people who claimed that they were following Jesus. Amen. Because there's no cause to hate. If you hate him, it's without a cause. He's, he's altogether lovely. He's wonderful. He's amazing. And it's amazing to me that that person like that would come to sinful people like us and lay his hands on us. He said, I'll fellowship with you. And if you come in here wanting him, he's fellowshipping with you right now. Amen. And if you come in here and you're not saved, you've never been born again, I want you to know, listen, you just come to him and he will in no wise cast you out. He came for you. Amen. Isn't that the great news of the gospel? Man, all these things are in this text. This is what Jesus had in mind when He came. The place He abandoned. The position He accepted. The posture He adopted. The people He approached. And then lastly, and I'm done. The purpose He accomplished. I want you to notice at the end of our text it says that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This text reminds us of from where he came, down from his glory. This text reminds us of how he came. He came as a servant. He came humble. But this text also reminds us of why He came. I want you to underline those words, the cross. And I want you to know this morning that that is why He came. Look up here real close. And I'm not mad at anybody for celebrating anything, but listen, listen to me. Jesus didn't come so we could have a holiday. Amen. Jesus was not thinking about a holiday when He came. He wasn't thinking about a fat man in a red suit or a fat man in a black pinstripe suit. Amen. He wasn't thinking about reindeer. I promise you that because he never created flying deer or anything like that. He wasn't thinking about presents. He wasn't thinking about all those things. I want you to know when he came, he came to be obedient unto death. Now listen, even the death of the cross. Jesus was born to die. He came to be the sacrifice for our sin. He came to die. I quote that verse, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister, and here's what He said, and to give His life a ransom for many. That is why He came. He came to give His life. The writer of Hebrews says, but we see Jesus 
who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He by the grace of God should taste death for every man. That ought to settle the debate who Jesus died for right there. Amen. He tasted death for every man. Put your name in that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Why? That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now Jesus healed people. He took care of blinded eyes and deaf ears and dumb mouths. He took care of all kinds of things. He performed miraculous things. He fed hungry miraculously. He calmed storms miraculously. He did all kinds of miracles. He preached with authority. He preached the good news of the kingdom. He pre- but the reason that He came was to be our sacrifice. That is why He came. I know you've heard this before, but I love this quote. I don't know where it came from, but somebody said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. Amen. That's exactly when the angel came to Joseph to calm and distill his fears. The angel said, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Which means what? Savior, Jehovah saves. That's what the name Jesus means. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. John had it right when he saw Jesus on the banks of that Jordan River. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who can open up blinded eyes. That's not what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who can raise the dead. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who's a really good preacher. That's not what he said. He said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That's our greatest problem is our sin problem. We needed a Savior, and that's why He came. The purpose, He accomplished it, and I'm glad to say, thank God, He completed the task that He came to do. He lived a sinless life, and He set His face like a flint to Calvary. And before He gave up the ghost, He cried out, It is finished! Thank God He finished what He came to do. He secured, He obtained eternal redemption for us. Thank God He has saved us. And I'm glad I can wave my hands toward heaven today and I can say not because of anything I've done, but because of what that baby grew up and became a man and went to Calvary and became God's sacrifice. Because of all that, I can stand and say that I am numbered among those who have been redeemed. My sins are forgiven. Thank God the blotting of the ordinances that were against me, they've all been blotted out, that handwriting of ordinance. I'm glad my sins are gone. They are absolutely gone. He said their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. How can a just God just put away all of our sin? Because He looks at Calvary and He looks at the blood and He sees what Jesus did and He says, I am satisfied with the work of my sacrifice, and I get in on it by faith. 
I didn't do nothing. I ain't got to do anything. Amen. I'm not spend one second in hell or purgatory trying to pay off anything that's left over. I'm glad he didn't just get me to the 99, 99 yards, give me the one yard line and say, you get yourself the rest of the way in. I'm glad Jesus paid it all. He finished the work. And listen, I know you fail, I fail, I know you sin today, I've probably sinned, I know we've done all those things, but listen, you will not ever have to pay for your sins because they've already been taken care of. That's what He came to do. That's it. He came to die. He was born to die so that you and I might live. The Son of God, Miss Maddie, come around. The Son of God became the Son of Man that the sons of men might be made the sons of God. What a tremendous, tremendous truth. And you're either in one of two categories in here today. You're either in the category of you need to put your faith and trust in Him for salvation or you will die in your sins and you will spend eternity in hell after Jesus already came and did all these things for you. And you need to put your faith and trust in Him today. You're either in that category or you're in the category of those that have been saved by the good grace of God and you need to get somewhere alone with God and you need to thank Him for what He has done. Let's stand together.